Revelation 2, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. If you have a Bible, you might like to open it. Um, if you don't, it's fine. You'll cope without it. So let's do the story so far. Now, last week, John gave us a very good background, but it's a little reminder helps. There is this gentleman called John. Whether or not this was the John of the Gospels or the John that wrote the epistles is under debate. People always like to talk about these. I'm quite happy to accept it was the same person. It makes it easier. But there's this chap called John who's on an island called Patmos, which is a little tiny island sitting in the Aegean Sea. He is there because he's been sent there for being a naughty boy. In other words, he was an active Christian and the state didn't like it. So he's basically in a sort of prison. It's a sort of open prison. They sent him to Patmos. This again tells you a little bit about him because there's an implication there that he was maybe high-born or um, an important person because they didn't just stone him or kill him. Um, If you look at the history of the Roman Empire, where the naughty brothers and sisters got sent by the emperor was often an island like Patmos. So he's been sent off out the way to keep him quiet. This doesn't work if the Holy Spirit's working with you, because God can still work anywhere. So sending him away to an island on Patmos where he can do no damage whatsoever, according to the people who sent him there, results in the book of Revelation, which we're still reading. So they failed miserably. And we have the book. So John's on the island of Patmos, and he has a vision of Jesus And Jesus says, go and write a letter to seven churches. And I'm going to give you seven letters. Take them down. Jesus almost dictates them. And it says, write this down. So you have this picture of John there writing down the the picture as Jesus gives him the vision. So seven churches. The thing to pick up on now is that these were seven real churches. They weren't seven ideals. There were seven real churches around that area. And as John showed last week, they're sort of in a line down the west coast of Turkey. And I suspect the reason for this is because they were close to Ephesus. Um, There is a tradition that John, uh, who wrote the Gospels, uh, finished his life in Ephesus, and that was where he he finished his time and his ministry. And I, I, I like that idea. It all fits with this. So these seven uh, towns down the coat, down that part of Turkey, uh, they vary in size. There's the smallest ones, or some are so tiny, and then there's Ephesus. And Ephesus is the big city. Ephesus is the big place. It's the sort of Los Angeles, the New York, whatever. It, it's the place to be is Ephesus. It's on the coast. You can go to Ephesus today. It's not on the coast. The coast moved. Um, but you, it, it was at this time, it was on the coast. It's mentioned in the uh, Acts of the Apostles. Paul goes there a number of times and is very, very warmly received. So it's a strong church. Paul loves going there. The book, the, the epistle we have, is to the, the, the Christians in Ephesus. And again, it's a slightly different epistle to the others. It's very encouraging. It's very helpful. So I want you to have this picture of this, this strong church, um, this contending church, a church that you, 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 would, you would take note of. Ephesus itself uh, was a center for commerce. It was also a religious center. It has in it the Temple of Diana. And this is a sort of powerful influence on the area. And if you look in, in, back into the Acts of the Apostles, there was a riot in Ephesus because the silversmiths 
um, objected strongly to the preaching of the gospel because people were stopping buying silver um, uh, little idols and little gods which were being made for Diana. So the gospel is beginning to affect the economy of the time and leads to this uh, this riot. And you've got in Ephesus, in, 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 the, in Acts of the Apostles, a mention of the amphitheater. You can go to the amphitheater today. It's one of the, the really um, amazing places. It's still there. The amphitheater was a Greek-based amphitheater. It's not a Roman one. So it's been there a long, long, long time. So I want you to have this picture of this very established town or city, a uh, center of, of commerce, um, a place that everybody comes to, but a place that's not necessarily too easy to be a Christian. Because uh, if you upset people too much, you get sent to the island of Patmos or the silversmiths will riot. And there's this balance going on all the time between what you can do and what the state will allow you to do. So that's the picture of Ephesus. Just another thing to say before we go any further, each of these churches, these seven churches, God gives a message to, and this message contains a blessing, and in all but one, which I'm sure the person who deals with that will say why this is so, um, contains a warning. So this church in Ephesus gets a blessing from God, and it also gets a warning. And that leads us to ask ourselves a question now. If God was writing a letter to us today, what should we expect? Oh, yeah, we're all cool with the blessing bit. What would the warning be? And that's something we can each ask ourselves. What would the warning to our church be and what would the warning to us as individuals be? I don't know. But there would be one. So the next thing is to be really honest about this. We don't like getting warnings. It's culturally not good in our present society. We're not, we, you know, you should respect everybody and not say anything about them. We'll come to this in a minute. But how do you respond when God gives you a warning? Let me give you something even more frightening. Okay? Not having a warning. If God isn't giving you a warning, there are two reasons. One, you're under severe persecution. He's giving you some leeway. We're not quite there. The second one, he's not treating you as a son or daughter. That's much more frightening. Each of us in our Christian walk should be aware of places that God is challenging us and giving us warnings. And if we're not, we're out of tune. We might not like it. So that's where this church in Ephesus is. Of the seven churches, it's the one to me that is closer to our present age where we are today. All the problems they have, we seem to be having as well, like the pressure of commerce, um, how you have to, to uh, not say too much, mustn't upset the commerce. So this is what we're, we're faced with today. But this was giving them some pressure and they were under some uh, difficulties about this. And this is how it's referred to. Uh, to the angel or the leader or the, uh, the voice of the church in Ephesus, write. The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. Now, I could spend a month just on that sentence alone. The, the one I'm going to pick up on is <laughs> that very simple phrase, I know. 
Whatever problem you have at the moment, that's all you need to know about it. God knows. And often, a lot of our challenges in life is because we we can't quite accept that. God knows. You're trying to get God to change something? Carry on, but God knows. So I know your works. I know. So there's comfort in that. God knows. And he let them, he he leaves them in their challenge, but he knows. So your challenge is known to God. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Immediate reaction is, well, it doesn't apply to me because I'm not an apostle. Uh, This is dealing with principles here. This is the question. Have tested those who call themselves and are not. Now, if you're going to test those who are not, how did you find out those who were not? Because you had to test those who were. Yeah? So we come back to this theme that we should expect to be tested not only by God but by other Christians. And they are commended here for having tested the other apostles and having found them not to be apostles to have taken action against them. This could be pretty uncomfortable if you were a genuine apostle and you were being tried, asked questions, tested to see whether you were a genuine apostle or not. It's no good getting prickly and uppity If you find that someone's challenging your ministry, this might be from God. It's not a question of saying, oh, who are you to challenge me? Are you familiar with the German word Zeitgeist? I know about three German words. One is Zeitgeist. Have you heard Zeitgeist? Put your hand up if you've heard Zeitgeist. Oh, someone's heard Zeitgeist. No. I guess it's maybe a bit out of date now, but it it was a phrase knocking around the 1990s, 1980s. And it sort of means the spirit of the age. It sort of, I suppose it is out of date for some of you guys. You weren't even born then, were you? Um, It it sort of means the spirit of the age, the the atmosphere of the time. That's what it means. That each, uh, as we look at our, our human societies, they go through periods of having different attitudes. And the zeitgeist of our age, where we are today, It's very much do not challenge. Everybody has a right to be an individual. You have a right to say what you believe. You have a right to be heard. Um, Your opinion matters. I do not wish to trap myself into going into political talkings this morning, but it was pretty obvious that the Americans have got a problem. Whatever you think of what happened in that debacle, that sham thing that happened in America... A judge who has been investigated six times by the FBI is declared guilty and then had to prove himself innocent. I don't think it matters what you think about him or the situation. That was what was going on. And that is a terrible problem. When the zeitgeist of the age comes to a place where you can just point a finger at someone and I have a perfect right to say you are a liar and now you have to prove you're right. That was what was happening. Did you follow this with Kavanaugh and whatever else? But it, that's what happened. This guy was, he's been investigated six times by the FBI to get to where he has. So let's not go into the, the truth or whether, whatever, but the point was he was declared guilty. Now prove yourself innocent. 
That's the zeitgeist of our age. That's where it's going. The rights of the individual have become so powerful that the, the loudest voice seems to have their own way. And this is, this is causing us problems as Christians, I'm sure. But the Ephesian church have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Completely different attitude, completely different approach to test and be tested, to try and be tried. And if, i just repeat what I said, if you're in a ministry life or you're growing or wherever you are in your life, if you find that difficult, this is a biblical pattern. All the way through the scriptures you'll find this, to try and be tried. Be tried in love, yes, but I know you are enduring patiently and bearing for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So this is a, a church that is, that is growing strong. Now we come to the hard bits. But I have this against you. Oh, yeah, Everybody would love down to verse 3. I think we all cope with that. I have this against you. If this church, which is standing as it is in Ephesus, which is repeatedly visited by Paul, which has its own letter written to it, which has become uh, a model, if you like, for the, for the early church, if God has something against it, he has something against us. And he has something against you and me. So the need for self-examination, continual self-examination and humility comes out. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. I, I don't want to go into what that may mean because I don't know. Uh, it, it, obviously, uh, the writer John knows the church and I suspect that phrase would have meant something particular to them and they would have known what it meant. Exactly, and we don't. But what we do know is that the problem was there. You have a problem, and I have a problem. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and here is the answer. Repent. Don't we just like that word? Repent. What does repent mean? The Greek, the literal Greek, is not about saying sorry. It is not about turning round. It is not about changing direction. None of that. It basically means to have a new mind. It means to alter your mind. The, the word is metanuio. Meta meaning alongside, uh, accompanying, nuio, mind. To have an alternate mindset and to move to it. In other words, be prepared to grow. Be prepared to alter. Be prepared to change. So, here is your answer. Be prepared to change and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This applies to both individuals and to churches. So, great to get the blessing. Here is the warning. How does this apply to me, is the question to ask. If you're in a leadership in the church, how does it apply to the church as well? Because these are not empty threats. I've seen more than one church fail. The Ephesian church seemed to carry on for a good few hundred years after this, and one might add. Um, that there is letters from the leaders of the Ephesian church going on for a good few hundred years. So the church obviously carried on. Now, this next bit 
Yet you have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is hard. There are two, two words here which are hard for us to take in today. Let's deal with the easy word, Nicolaitans. Who or what were the Nicolaitans? I, I would love to go into that this morning. I had a little chat with John about this. We, we've been going about this for ages because there's so many interesting things. Just Google it. I'll just leave it like that. If you want to know really who they were, Google it and find out. What they were, without any question of doubt, was a sect within the church that was very liberal sexually. Let's just put it like that. Sounds familiar? The Ephesians were under much the same sort of pressures that we are today. There's that wonderful verse in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new on the earth, is it? Sometimes we think we're facing, that, that we're facing particular difficulties. We're not. They had the same problems. And the other thing to look at is that this was written about AD 90, AD 100. The Roman world was at its peak. It was at the peak of its uh, waywardness, shall we say. 200 years. And the Roman Empire fell and became Christian. Constantine, about 360, 350, 360. Yeah, so they did all right, didn't they? The, the, the Roman Empire was actually bowed to the Christian ethic and, and changed. So let's not be disheartened. You know, th- that wonderful phrase in, in, in verse 2, I know your works. God knows. He knows what he's doing. I am not responsible for the outcome. I can't be that. God is responsible for that. I am responsible for how I play my part. Let's leave the outcome to God. Let's trust that to him. But let's play our parts. If you want to look up the interesting things about the Nicolaitans, it, it's all there. It, it's a play on words. I personally believe it had nothing whatsoever to do with the guy Nicholas in, uh, I have a vested interest here, as you probably appreciate, um, in Acts, Acts 6. And there's a whole, the early church had a whole bunch of rumors that came out. And some of the early church leaders um, say, this is just all rumor. Uh, stop it, basically. So there's a warning hidden in here about the danger of rumours and the danger of gossip, but we won't go there. But this is what the Nicolaitans were. Now, this is the bit that I found very, very challenging personally. Um, And it's it's quite hard to bring, because in the zeitgeist of our age, if I come back to that phrase, this is just not acceptable, what I'm going to say now. But it's here. And it comes up more than once in this passage. I hate. I also hate. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. I also hate them. Um, You cannot bear those who are evil. That word hate. You have this. You hate. They are commended because they hate evil. Now, That made me think. Next week, we're going to select two of you. Let us pretend. And we're going to stick you on the BBC, say Newsnight, or somewhere like that. And we're going to ask you to defend what you hate. Now, think of a subject that you can hate on the BBC without being criticised. It's very small. I came up with three. 
you can think of some more, let me know. In fact, let's have a poll now. Who can think of something that today it is socially acceptable to hate? Come on, shout them out. Poverty. Sorry? Poverty. Poverty, yeah, but how do you define poverty? Right. One. No one? Children who assume that they are born girls and are really boys. But you can't hate that. I say that God has made a mistake which I can hate. Ah, but you can't for the BBC. The BBC won't accept that. Ah, right, okay. So we're looking, we're looking, we're looking, we're looking for subjects that the BBC will accept that you can hate. Right? So that one, you would be slated for that and told you are a bigot. And you, you are a morally reprehensible bigot. That's what you are. Anything else you can hate on the BBC? Uh, well, that depends on who they are and what they're trying to do. I mean, there was one we called Little Rocket Man who we hate. Now he's become our best friend. Who else? What else can we hate? Sorry? Racism. We can hate racism. So poverty, racism, yeah. Sorry? Sexism, well, that's the same as poverty, racism. It's the same sort of thing, yeah, okay. Um, it's, and I can think of two more, really. Um, Nazis. Anything you mention Nazi, you can hate. Pol Pot, no. Anybody else who's been... Stalin, no. Be careful there, you might upset somebody. The only thing you can really stand up and be absolutely confident that everybody will agree with you is anything with the word Nazi in Okay, if, but if, it's, if, it was some, if, if it was something, a crime committed by Stalin, exactly the same crime, you've got to be careful what you say because you might be upsetting them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, other, the other one, I, I think, is, is um, uh, non-consensual sex. Non-consensual, that covers children and um, whatever. Other, I mean, basically, it came down for me for those things. Um, poverty, which isn't defined... Um, um, a, ra- a racism or an ism, Nazi- Nazism, and non-consensual sex. Anything else, I'm not allowed to hate. How you unpack all that, you're not allowed to hate. That's the zeitgeist of our age. Everyone has a right to speak up and say. So if I claim that I'm in poverty because of something you did, you have to respect that. The fact that it's something I did um, is not... It's, you can't really say that. The politicians will get slated for that. That's the age we live in. So, what do you hate? What does the word hate mean? How do you express your hate? Psalm 26, verse 5. I hate the assembly of evildoers. Psalm 31, verse 6. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. I put my trust in the Lord. Um, This is one the other way around. But God says to the wicked, What right have you to recite my statutes and take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. So here it's the other way around. Psalm 97, uh, verses 9. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. 
Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Psalm 139, 21 to 24. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in ways everlasting. What do we mean by hating evil? Because in the Psalms, God commands that we hate evil. God describes himself as hating evil. The psalmist is is commended for for hating evil. Um, Revelation 2 with the Ephesians, they are commended for hating evil and warned not to not hate evil. Is that true for us? Where do we hate evil? What does hate do? It moves you to motivate you. I I think I've said many, many times, both here and in all sorts of places, that, that there are two major issues from my way of thinking that have caused the Western church to lose its influence. And until we correct those two, in, those two problems, uh, the Western church will keep losing its influence. One is prayer. Uh, very simply, you've heard me say this many times now, very simply, our prayer life has become my will be done, not thy will be done. Until the church gets its head around the fact that prayer is thy will be done and not my will be done, the church is going to lose influence. The second one is this is attitude to leadership. Um, dictatorial leadership is, is one of the problems within the church. It uh, has been for 2,000 years. Until we sort that, uh, we're going to be in problems. When I read this, I started to think, this is a third problem. Where is a church that stands up and hates evil? Where is a church that, as, as you, from my humble opinion, correctly say, we have to stand up and say, there are some things which are just plain wrong. We need to speak out against them. Where are we doing it? We've become so sucked in to the uh, being nice, to the don't uh, love everybody, um, etc. Just make space for things because it's your opinion. I, I, I'm probably going to get arrested for saying this, but I strongly suspect in 10, 15, 20 years' time, there's going to be a whole load of lawsuits coming from children who were placed into families that were not uh, biologically normal, suing people for having put them there. I suspect. Um, I don't want to get myself arrested, but what I can tell you is a scientific fact, which is something which is not really fashionable today to fall onto. Every single one of you can chip off a tiny, tiny piece of skin, hair, or whatever, and you will find in it a piece of DNA. That piece of DNA will tell you what gender you are. It's coded into every single cell of your body. The, the whole thing about transgenderism only arrived when we found we could give people hormones and we could do operations. It didn't exist before then. I think it's a marketing ploy to, to push all that. This is, this is unpopular. You can't say this. I couldn't say that on the BBC. I'd be chased off the BBC. But it's a fact. Every single cell of your body contains a DNA marker um, that says whether you're male or female. What have we done with hate? Well, I don't want to be arrested unnecessarily. Uh, however, um, 
to my standing here at the moment, to my knowledge and my recent reading tells me that there is still no evidence whatsoever that um, sexual preference, homosexuality, or anything else has any basis other than uh, the upbringing or the choice of the individual. There is nothing genetic, there is nothing biological, there is nothing hormonal. Despite what people say, the evidence for it is woefully missing. But if you say that on the BBC, you'd just be probably arrested and thrown off and done for a hate crime. But that's a fact. So the facts have gone out the window while we give way to what people want to believe. Hence the zeitgeist of the day. What I want is true. What I want, I must be allowed to have. That's not reality. I would love to be able to fly. If I go and jump off a mountain, I ain't going to. However much I might want to. So, this, this, is a, this is a big issue. How does the church stand up to this? Are we prepared to become unpopular? The early church was. They had a riot in Ephesus and they chased, chased Paul out of town. Um, am, I, am I saying we should be going out different? No, we shouldn't be. We're also told in the scriptures to be tactful, to be gentle, to try and avoid conflict. But we're told to be truthful. There was a, a little say, saying that I learned years and years ago in the church that I first went to, which was, love the sinner and hate the sin. What we've done is love the sinner and ignore the sin. The church has got to a place where, yeah, we, we love the sinner, and the sin, that's preference. That's your preference. They say, it's not. It will come back. Uh, there's uh, an old thing about, you know, keep the maker's instructions. Go and buy a car, which we've all done. Then ignore all the advice about how you run it. You know, don't service it. Use it for the wrong things. Um, it's going to break down. You have to use it as, it's, as the maker intended. Same with us. So, I would have preferred not to have brought a message this morning on hate, but John asked me to do Revelation 2, 1-7, and it contains a very strong message on hate, so I've got no choice, have I, really? Um, yet this you have, this is for you said to the Ephesians, this is for your blessing, I commend you for this. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I, I put to you were a sexually liberal group um, that were mentioned outside the scriptures too, mentioned in some of the uh, earlier writings, so they, they definitely existed, um, which I also hate. Now, let's just a little bit on the Nicolaitans. You've got to remember that Ephesus came, uh, was in this town of, uh, where they had the temple to Diana. And that the um, temple, temple prostitutes, etc., were very common in that sort of um, environment. So it didn't seem too bad to them because this is where they had come from. Uh, ritual prostitution in temples was normal. It's normal today, only it's called something different. Um, but it was normal. So for them, it was the big change was not um, becoming a Nicolaitan. The big change was not becoming a Nicolaitan, if you see what I mean. That was the big, the big change for them at that time. So culturally, they were under all these pressures. And, and someone could easily make a case, well, we're just uh, carrying on with our culture, etc., etc. All that could have been said at this time. But you have this for you, Ephesians. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Where do we hate? Hard message. We want to love. We want to be tolerant. We want to be popular. We want people to like us. We want to 
uh, not be uh, held back in our careers, held back in our lives because we want to, 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 to benefit ourselves. Not if you want to be a Christian. If you want to choose to follow God's way, you choose to follow God's way. There is no other way. It's his way or no way for, for where we are. That means making a stand. And our, our Christian society in the West particularly, this is not true in other parts of the world, but it's certainly true in the West. Um, I would have to add this now to my list of, of, of problems for the Western church. One, we don't understand prayer. We are praying my will be done rather than thy will be done. That's one. Two, we have to understand the concept that leadership is servanthood, not directing. Three, where do we stand on issues of uh, morality and lines? Do we hate? Love the sinner, but hate the sin. Father God, we just come to you and ask for your guidance. We come for uh, your comfort. We come for your direction. Help us not to cause problems unnecessarily. Help us not to go out of our way to cause issues. But help us to be truthful and standing on what you have shown us to be true. Even help us to be truthful and stand on what science shows us to be true. Help us to speak your word in truth and in love. Amen. Thank you, Nick, very much. All these next six weeks, if we are not challenged, just like Nick is saying, we're not really tuned. Because all of these churches were following God, just like we are, and yet there was a but. And so we want to be tuning into God and saying, yes, Lord, thank you for the lovely things that we're doing. Thank you, Lord, in my life, for this, this, and this. But what is the but? I don't want to ignore it. I don't want to put it under the carpet, put my head in the sand. Lord, I want to deal with it, with my friend's help, my brothers and sister's help, and with your help, Lord. It's Joshua 24, 14, and 15. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And that's got to be the challenge for the next few weeks, not just because we're looking at Revelation, but because that's where we're at as a church in this country, isn't it? We will serve the Lord or we're not going to serve the Lord. So obviously there's going to be time for prayer in a little while. So if you want to be prayed for, there's space or just turn to the person next year. Because what we want to do is just to uh, consider and think about what God has been saying to us. I want to love what you love and hate what you hate. It's taken from Zechariah 4. It's really weighed heavily on my heart all this week. Then the angel who had been talking with me returned and woke me as though I had been asleep. What do you see now, he asked. I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl of oil on top of it. Around the bowl are seven lamps. 
each one having seven spouts with wicks. And I see two olive trees, one on each side of the bowl. Then I ask the angel, what are these, my Lord? What do they mean? Don't you know, the angel asked. No, my Lord, I replied. Then he said to me, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force, nor by strength, but by by spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Nothing, not even a mighty mountain, will stand in Zerubbabel's way. It will flatten out before him. Then Zerubbabel will set the final stone of the temple in place, and the people will shout, May God bless it. May God bless it. Then another messenger message came to me from the Lord. Zerubbabel is the one who, who laid the foundation of this temple, and he will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. For these seven lamps represent the eyes of the Lord that search all around the world. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on each side of the lampstand? And what are the two olive branches that pour out golden oil through two golden tubes? Don't you know, he asked. No, my Lord, I replied. Then he said to me, they represent the two anointed ones who assist the Lord of all the, over all, all, of all the earth. I'm not too sure why I've had to read that at this moment in time, uh, but I've found that the footnotes were extremely helpful, and I, if anybody wants to go back and read those footnotes, it's really quite challenging. Thank you, Lord, that your word is from everlasting to everlasting. Your word is truth, all truth. And I just pray, Lord, that we'll be able to stand on that solid rock, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the one who defeated death, hell, evil, and Lord resurrected. And he is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the ending of all things, and not to fear man. In Jesus' name, amen. very helpful so let's just again just think about what we've just heard read we don't need to rush on we can just relax and say lord what's that meaning now to us as ncf and as individuals it's not a scripture it's a chorus we've sung before when i spoke now she spoke about it is i can't remember the word it's my spirit the god has spoken about it's his spirit in your his spirit and we've sung a chorus several times but spirit of the living God fall afresh on us um, break me melt me mold me fill me spirit of the living God fall afresh on me we can't do anything without the spirit but in that he, he breaks us he doesn't want us he challenges us he breaks us he doesn't want us Stay a broken mess, a broken heap. Oh dear. Melt us. He melts us, but he doesn't want us to stay a molten molten mess. He molds us. And he doesn't want us to stay an inanimate object like you see these beautiful vases, 
whatever they are. He wants to fill us. And it's only through him filling us that we could be able to do anything. But he doesn't force us. It's up to us how open we are and how much we want to be filled. And he doesn't force us. It's up to each one of us individually how up. Oh, Father, just thank you that you love us. You've chosen us. Weak, feeble, nothing really. Just a molten, broken mess. But you love us. You want us to be molded in your likeness. And Father, help us to be what you want us to be. We have our own stumbling blocks. It's up to us how open we need to be more open. Help us to be more open. Let's just think about that for 30 seconds or so. Because we don't want to rush on. This is God speaking to us. It's great that God has got a lot to say, isn't it? Because we're the way we are. That's why God's got a lot to say, isn't it? So maybe 30 seconds, Jean's going to come in and help us and think about something else maybe or something just the same. But let's just think about that just for a short while. I um, just wanted to share that I asked the Lord to speak to me um, last week um, just to tell me what he wants to impart to me. And I had this dream, and it was a dream... Um, so I was uh, in my mother's house, and my mother's passed away now. I was in her house, and um, I was there with my sister, and other people were there. And I was in the hall, and in the dream, um, the doorbell rang. It was really loud. And when I opened the doorbell, um, there was a bright light outside the door. So I went out to the door, there's a bright light, and there was no one there I could see. Um, and when I thought about, I said, oh, what do you mean? What is, what is telling me about this dream? Um, it, this, this scripture came. It was, behold, I stand at the door of the church and continually knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, restore him, and he with me. And I just felt like that God was saying to me, he wants to draw me closer to him into more intimacy um, and to... to because he's always knocking on my heart's door and he's trying to get my attention, trying to get our attention. So it's just an encouragement to us now today to just encourage us to know that God is actually every day knocking on our heart's door, trying to draw us closer to him, um, into more, into an intimate, close relationship with him so we can hear exactly what he's saying for us to do in our lives, in our families, in our environment, um, to bring his kingdom into our workplaces or into our homes, into our communities. So that's just an encouragement. So it's just Revelation 3.20. Okay. Thank you, Jean. So, Lord, we say again, Lord, unstop our ears. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And, Lord, as you speak to us, continue to speak to us, Lord, not just this morning, but this afternoon and tomorrow and the next few Sundays, Lord, when it's sort of similar passages of encouragement, but of challenge as well. Help us, Lord, not to shrink back from what you're saying, but to push forward with you, Lord, knowing that you're with us, you love us, and you're making us new creations, Lord.
to do your will. Help us to know where to repent in our lives. Maybe to talk to someone after the service or talk with you a lot this afternoon. Lord, help us to be real with you, Lord, we pray. Amen. Lord, we thank you for that verse this morning. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Help us, Lord, to open ourselves up to molding. We don't ask you, Lord, to come and mold us. You've already promised to do that. We're already doing it. Help us, Lord, to have a new mind. Open ourselves up to your hand, to be molded. And in all that, Lord, release your joy into us. Amen. Amen.